0: Welcome to the NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast, where we answer your personal finance questions and help you feel a little smarter about what you do with your money. I'm Liz Weston. And I'm Sean Piles.
1: To send the nerds your money questions, call or text us on the nerd hotline at 901-730-6373. That's 901-730-NERD. Or email us at podcast at nerdwallet.com.
0: To get new episodes delivered to your devices every Monday, hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. This episode, we have a very special guest, personal finance columnist and author, Michelle Singletary. Michelle's award-winning column, The Color of Money, is syndicated by the Washington Post Writers Group to media outlets nationwide. She's also the author of several books about money, including her latest, which is called What to Do With Your Money When Crisis Hits, A Survival Guide. She also recently authored a 10-part series, Sincerely, Michelle, that tackled issues surrounding the wealth gap for Black Americans. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: It's so great to have you. It really is an honor to have you on. And I really enjoyed your book. It's a great emergency field guide about how to manage various money challenges, like how to handle bills when you lose your job, or how to get better at money management in general, and even about how to overcome fears about investing. And early on in the book, you declare that you manage your finances as if you're in a perpetual recession, which really stood out to me. Can you discuss what you mean by that and how it's benefited you?
2: Yeah, when people hear that, they go, your life must suck. (laughs) 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 You're always worried about money. And I did want to be bold with that statement. And it is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. But let me explain what I mean by that. So I'm not living my life in fear, but I'm just living my life so that I prepare for life because life happens. And I liken it to if you're in a fire station and the men and women who work there, they're always working on the equipment, making sure everything is ready when they get that call for fire. Mm -hmm. That is what it's like living in a perpetual recession. You know that something's going to happen. You hope that it doesn't, but you need to be prepared for it mentally and physically. And so that's what I mean by that, that I know that there is going to be another crisis. It's not a matter of mm-hmm. if, but when. <laughs> right. So the book is called What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits. And I think um, people might think, well, I'm not in a crisis. I don't need this book. But it's not really about everybody who's in a crisis. Mm-hmm. It, it sort of sets you up for how do you develop the mindset that something is eventually going to happen and maybe it's not devastating for you but it still could impact you or impact the people that you know. One of the reasons why we structured it the way we did is a an FAQ and short, you know, uh, chapters is because I wanted people not to be overwhelmed. When you're in a crisis you get kind of overwhelmed and telling people to read a 200-page, you know, financial book is not going to go. And so, you know, it's just not going to happen. And so, so you can flip through it, and it's for old, it's for young, it's for people mid-career, starting out, teenagers. Um, just flip through and find the section that resonates with you. But There are a lot of resources that you need to go to to fill out the things that I'm telling you. And one of them is NerdWallet. I mean, you guys do an amazing job at giving really smart information that is very accessible. I think that's what differentiates you you from other sites. It, It doesn't talk over people's head. It doesn't talk down to people. And I tried to do that same thing with this book.
0: -hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned the firefighters, and that resonated with me because I've read books about people who survive disasters, Mm -hmm. plane crashes, all kinds of bad things happen. And a lot of people don't survive because their brains try to figure out what's happening and they can't compare it to anything they've ever been through. And so they literally freeze. Hmm. What firefighters do is they practice, they practice scenarios, they practice different uh, things happening so that they can be ready for anything. And what you're talking about with your book is exactly the same thing. Even if you're not in crisis right now, you will be at some point, things will happen. So go through the steps so that you know what to do when it does hit. So I love the fact that you brought that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is mm-hmm.
2: so on point. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You got to, you got to be ready. You got to have a plan.
0: Make your brain do pushups. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I hate pushups too,
0: but I do them. <laughs> yep. Got to do them anyway. <laughs>
2: you know, my husband and I live on income that we made several years ago. So every Mm -hmm. time we get a raise, we still live like we did before we got that money because something could happen. We could lose our jobs, you know, which one time did happen. My eldest child got very ill and almost died. And both of us had to take off, you know, several months and went through all of our leave, both of us, because we always had someone in the hospital with her, but we were Mm -hmm. prepared to stay there for as long as we could. That's, what I mean by living in a perpetual recession. So not maybe an actual recession, but anything that can disrupt your income.
0: I love that example of what you were able to do because you had that financial flexibility that you created by putting aside extra money. But Michelle, how do you resist that? How do you resist lifestyle (laughs) inflation? More money is coming in. Don't you want to live large?
2: (laughs) I think it boils back to my childhood. Um, which started off pretty rocky. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents abandoned me. My siblings and I ended up going to live with my grandmother. uh, And she just taught me how to just not inflate my lifestyle because she couldn't. She Mm -hmm. was an assistant at a hospital. She didn't make a lot of money. My uh, grandfather who lived with us was an alcoholic, so Mm -hmm. his money didn't always come home. And so she just taught me to sort of prepare and just not want more. The one thing I i appreciate is that I, now not then is mm-hmm. that she never apologized for what she couldn't give us, that we mm-hmm. didn't have a better life, that she couldn't get us the fancy sneakers or clothes. or I never stepped foot in a restaurant until I was in my teens and in college. Wow! And so she never said, I'm so sorry what we can't give you. I'm so sorry I can't do that. She said, this is all that I can give you. And you need to be appreciative of that because, quite frankly, we would have ended up in foster care. Yeah. And I remember that so that as my husband and I have done well, and we have done well, I remember what that was like I remember that this is all fleeting we know and and if nothing else young adults know this and this is the one thing I so appreciate about them companies are not loyal to us Mm -hmm. even the best of companies when they're layoffs you're not you guys know what happens is their stocks go up what is that and so you (laughs) you know so you realize that you can't inflate your lifestyle because you got to have some cushion and because of my background I understand that things happen We just don't inflate our lifestyle. Now, that doesn't mean that we live in a hovel. (laughs) We We live in a two-story, four- or five-bedroom house on almost an acre of land. We Mm. take a two-week vacation every year to a nice resort, but everything else kind of goes, you know? We don't eat a lot. You don't have a lot of clothes. We keep our cars for like 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) So we pick and choose what is of value to us, and then everything gets gone, right? Mm -hmm everything. I mean, if you saw the car I drive, you go, that child does not work for the Washington Post. (laughs) 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 She is lying.
0: (laughs) But But it runs, right? It runs just fine.
2: It runs just fine. I don't care if you look at it and think, what? Why did she not get a new car? I don't care what you think. You guys mm-hmm. can ask me, do I care? You can go ahead and <laughs> ask me. Ask me. No. Because <laughs> um, I, I don't. Because I love yeah. this. I love you, Sean. But you are not going to put my kids through college. Mm, you are not yeah. going to pay my mortgage. <laughs> you know, And so I just keep that in mind. And that's how I don't inflate my lifestyle.
1: I think that helps a lot and uh, focus on gratitude for what you do have instead of what you don't have and then continually longing for that because you're never going to catch up to this figment in, in your mind of what someone else does have in their life.
2: That's, yeah. that's exactly right. I mean, we the phrase is keeping up with the Joneses, mm-hmm, um, except mm-hmm. the Joneses are just broke. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. You don't know that they're broke. Exactly. Um, and I get peer pressure. We think peer pressure is only for children and teens, but we adults have a lot of peer pressure You're from right. social media, from mm-hmm, television, mm-hmm. from marketing ads. I get it. So I'm not mad at people who fall for that because it takes a lot of discipline to stay on track. So I talked about how I did it from my background, but let's look forward to the future. How do we stay on track? Mm -hmm. So we have three children and we knew, my husband and I, that we wanted to put them to college with no debt, nor did we want to take on debt. And so every time there was that temptation to get a new car or shop every weekend, we just thought, "What, what would happen in the future if they had to take on this debt? So we just kept that in mind and we said no to them. We said no to ourselves. And all three of my children, I'm going to cry, <laughs> two are out of college and we have one more to go mm. and they don't have any debt. And my middle child, a um, male, is has autism. And so we knew it'd be a struggle. We knew he had to take longer and it did. It took him five years. Mm-hmm. And um, and as a result, he was able to graduate because we had the money for tutors and all the things to help him graduate. Mm-hmm. And he did. He graduated oh, with a math great. degree uh, uh, in the uh, May to, to 2021. And that's from all the times we said no, and we didn't inflate our lifestyle. Uh And, you know, throughout
1: the book, I really appreciate that sort of tough love approach that it seems like you took with your kids and you take with your audience, too, where you answer one question where it's, I know I need to save, but don't I deserve to treat myself every so often? (laughs) And you basically say (laughs) the answer to your question is, no, you don't get a splurge until you have a decent start on your emergency and quote unquote life happens fund. You will thank me later. And I love that so much. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I get a lot of pushback from that. You love me, but... (laughs) I wrote this column, and I knew it would be provocative. And and so I I deserved all the pushback that I received. Mm. But I wrote a column with the headline is, You Don't Deserve a Vacation If You're in Debt. Mm. And boy, did did I get feedback. (laughs) I mean, you would have thought I slapped somebody's child. (laughs) Uh, Or stole their dog. So... (laughs) (laughs) But I wanted to bring people in to say, hey... I didn't say don't treat yourself to some time off. You can have a staycation. You can walk mm-hmm. in the park and take time off. But if you've got a whole bunch of debt, you've got to service that debt. Um, and I know that means denying yourselves those nice beach vacations or ski vacations or whatever floats your boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to tell you, because people will say, well, you know, as you're saving, then you can stop and give yourself a little treat. You don't get no treat. No. <laughs> no, because here's the thing. You are in trouble and you're in trouble for a reason. Now, sometimes it's because of health issues and you lost your job, but a lot of times it's because you overspend and you didn't have that discipline. And so now you're going to tell an undisciplined person to stop what they're doing, to treat mm. themselves. What's likely to happen? They're going to fall back. And mm. this is an extreme example. And I'm certainly not saying um, people are alcoholics, but when, when someone is an alcoholic, you don't go, you know what, Everyone else you can have a drink. Because you know the psychology and the physiology of that Mm -hmm. disease is that you have to say no. And so what I'm telling people is don't stop while you're on that treadmill, keep it up. And if you are suffering through it, that suffering will be a reminder when you're done not to go back there. We mm-hmm. don't like to suffer. We don't like to deny ourselves, but in it, it is in that denial that you learn discipline.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned alcoholics, that there's a 12-step group for people who are dealing with debt called Debtors Anonymous, and that is part of their message is going through the pain of dealing with your past is what will help you avoid repeating it which is a good message to get out there
2: that's exactly right and it's only for a season people act like i said you can't take a vacation for the rest of your life that's not what i said (laughs) (laughs) and and you know just just for a season now maybe it'll be a couple of seasons but if you just pause with the spending and just save and pay down your debt, you will get to the point where you can treat yourself. And boy, will that treat me be much better if mm-hmm. you aren't dragging debt um, behind you.
1: Right, that's a great point. And also while people are paying off debt, they can continue to save for different goals like a life happens or an emergency fund. That's and then right. when they begin to make good progress on those, maybe open another account for a vacation fund. So when that's that right. debt is paid off, you have a fully funded vacation just waiting for you.
0: That's right. Absolutely right. Now, one of the things that stood out to me when I was reading your book, Michelle, is that you were talking about things that actually happened versus what's supposed to happen. What I am referring to is like dealing with illegal evictions. And we at NerdWallet have been writing about how to deal with the issue when you can't pay rent or you can't pay your bills. And we were talking about what landlords are and aren't supposed to do. And you just kind of drove a pickup truck through that and said, this is what they're doing. They're illegally evicting people. And here's how you cope. And I I love that. And I also wanted to get a feel about what your advice is to people who are working through a money challenge that they weren't supposed to encounter. That's not fair. How do you deal with that?
2: When you find yourself in a situation where things didn't go as planned, through no fault of your own, um, don't feel guilty about it. So in the beginning of the book, I talk about how you pay different bills if you've lost your job. And I have spent my entire career telling people, pay your bills, pay them on time, no matter what. But there is a difference to that. And you've lost your job and you don't have any income. But people try to pay everything when they only can and should pay a few things Mm. to keep the lights on, food on the table. And I really wanted to tell people it's okay to say, I don't have the money to pay that credit card bill. I don't have Mm. the money to pay that student loan. And you call your lenders and you tell that even your landlord or your mortgage company, you got a little bit of breathing room um, if you own a home because it's going to take a while before the foreclosure process. So you've got some breathing room to say, I can't pay this right now. Now, yeah. renters, not as much time depending on the state that you live in. Some states longer, some not. Um, but you've got a little bit of room. So if you've got $200, dollars you got to put food on the table and keep the lights on. Yeah. And you might not be able to pay your rent. And I wanted to give people the freedom to say, "I I can't do this and be okay with that. Um, And don't worry about your credit score, for goodness sakes. We can help you fix that later on. Um, And so mostly what I tell people is to not feel bad. Don't beat themselves up. Um, Even if you weren't doing all the right things. In times of trouble, you don't wag your finger at people, even those who may have been Uh, financially irresponsible. That's not the time. That's not Mm -hmm. empathy. And I never do that. I'm not going to shake my fingers at people. Sure, you should have done better, but that's not, you know that. I don't need to tell you that. (laughs) Right? Yes. So, it's just it's a struggle and there are a lot of reasons why you don't have handle your money well and a lot of it has to do with how you grew up and what right. happened to you as a child mm. and all of those things that you know created baggage for you to to make you overspend or make bad decisions mm. i mean there's a a large part of the book i talk about decision making and mm-hmm. we don't often talk about that in our space right we talk about the decisions you should make But there's not enough discussion about how to make a better decision, Hmm. the steps that it takes to that.
1: I want to get into that a little bit because one of the central themes of the book was change, around changing your mindsets and your habits around money. And can you talk about why change is important when navigating a financial crisis?
2: Well, because you
1: can't change
2: what you don't acknowledge. Hmm. So anyone who's go to any substance issue or something like that, you have to understand why do you do what you do? Where did it come from? What happened to you? And then you've got to change your mind. Um, many people don't have a money problem. They have a money management problem, which is mm-hmm. the result of issues. We got issues. We all <laughs> I got issues. Um, you know, I may not be an overspender, but I can't spend for this to save my life. I mean, <laughs> it's a good thing we are doing a podcast because if it was up to me, I'd be buck naked. I hate to spend money <laughs> even on clothes. You know? Um, and so I spend a lot of time trying to get people to revisit why they do what they do. Um, it's like, for example, when people will always ask me, what is the best budgeting app or tool? Give me a recommendation. What's new? What's good? What's out there? And I, they always shock when I say it doesn't matter, just pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. And I say that. So like, say you buy an exercise bike. And it's the top of the line. It just got videos and all kinds of stuff. It's so cool. It's going to help you lose weight. No, it's not. <laughs> it's going to become a clothes hanger yes. if you don't have the mindset to get on that bike. So it's not the tool that makes you a good budget manager. It's your mind because you have decided that I'm going to budget better. And now you're going to get the bike or the tool to help you with that. But it's not the tool itself. It's you and your mind mm-hmm. that makes you Makes the difference.
0: Right. And it seems like sometimes it just takes getting fed up. I'm thinking about weight loss and money management is the same thing. You just get tired of being in the state that you're in, you get mad at it, and then you decide to take action.
2: That's right. That's exactly right. And that's okay. You know, (laughs) I do financial classes at my church and I help couples. My husband and I teach couples. And some people will come at the beginning of the session and they're all geared up. And then when it comes down to actually do work, they start missing classes. (laughs) You know, you never see them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's not, they're not there yet. They haven't fallen far enough to want to make a change. Mm. And I and I, that used to really upset me. Like I failed or I should run after them. I don't run after nobody now. <laughs> if you come to my classes and you drop off, that's on you. You're not ready for it. You're not yeah. ready for it. And so you're absolutely right. You sometimes, you have to let people fall before they get up and mm. make a
0: change. Well, this is kind of a sidetrack, but a lot of parents have real trouble with that. As their kids are growing up and as they're supposed to be adults and financially independent, what advice would you give those parents who just can't seem to stop whipping out the checkbook?
2: Yeah. Oh, that's a hard one because people love their kitties. Oh, we do. (laughs) And y'all don't want them to suffer at all. I Mm -hmm. say let them suffer, (laughs) suffer, (laughs) suffer, (laughs) suffer. And my kids know about that, right? I yeah. Mean, yeah, yeah. It's so it's so funny. I have to tell you quick stories. So we were talking about our estate because they're now all over eighteen, and we were talking about our estate and what happens to us and sharing. Finally, sharing our information about how much we have and things like that. And so my youngest heard how much we have, and she was like, "Oh, I'm rich." I'm like. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> You ain't rich, honey. <laughs> no, not until we die. And then she kind of looked at me. <laughs> and she was like, hmm. I said, what was that? <laughs> and so I say that in a, in a comic way because they never knew how well off we were. We mm-hmm. raised them as if we didn't have as much as we had. Mm-hmm. And, but parents don't want their kids to suffer. Now, why don't they want them to suffer? A lot of times it's because they grew up poor. Mm -hmm. or without, and they didn't want their kids to have that feeling that they have of going without. Or Mm -hmm. maybe they grew up having money and they just don't know what it's like to make your kids work for something. But I'm telling you, you do so much damage to your children when you don't put limits, when you don't pull back, um, and when you give Mm -hmm. them too much. Listen, I'm going to tell this story so bad. Don't (laughs) judge. Don't don't judge. Okay. So, So if your parent, you know, you usually have a big bin or a box or a laundry basket of toys, all toys, right? right. Mm-hmm. The top layer of toys are the toys the kids play with. The bottom mm-hmm. level, they don't play with. And so mm-hmm. I would take the top layer off and dig down and find toys that they didn't play with and wrap them up and put them under the tree. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's new to them. <laughs> I love <Yeah>. that. <laughs> I think it, it goes back to how you raise them. And my I have the story where my mom had us kids making our lunches in first mm-hmm. grade. And when I tell that story, people's jaws drop. And yeah, there were some days where my lunch was an apple and a cup of pudding. And <laughs> I was pretty hungry by the end of the day. And that right. taught me, oh, I better make a PB&J. I better learn how to make myself be self-sufficient at wow. a young age. And I'm very thankful for that. I think it's how I am where I am today.
2: You know, you got to do that. I love that your parents did that. I mean, it's just those little lessons and you weren't going to be starving. I mean, you were hungry, but you weren't going to be starving. And that's Mm -hmm. the difference. There was a time where when my kids were little, they didn't really have a lot of clothes because we just, they grow out of them so much and we Mm. didn't see the point of it. And so they had like maybe two pairs of shoes, one for church and one for school and a couple of outfits and we rotated them. It didn't matter us. They didn't matter them. They didn't know. Only matter to other people looking at us. We didn't care what they thought. And so (laughs) my eldest daughter uh, had a pair of sneakers that uh, she just decided she didn't like them anymore. I don't know why she just did. And she wouldn't put them on. I don't know, she must have been about five or so. And she just wouldn't put them on. And she only had that one pair. So she, so I said, okay, well, I don't know what you're going to do because you only had this one pair. And so she put on her socks. I packed the shoes into her little bag and she went to school with just her socks. Now, when she was walking into school, I could see all the mothers looking at me, judging me. And I looked at them, and I said, you can judge me if you want. She only got one pair of shoes. And I said, by recess, she's going to put them shoes on because she's going to want to go outside. And sure enough, she did. She put mm-hmm. them shoes on and went outside to play with her. What are mm-hmm. you going to play with me? Mm-mm, no. Mm-mm. <laughs> no.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's so funny. (laughs) Both those examples, Sean, yours and and Michelle's with their daughter, it's kind of consequences parenting. You, You give the kid the room to make a mistake and live with the consequences and the lesson sticks. Yeah.
2: That's so great. That's so funny. That's what my parenting teacher told us. We took a parenting class, right? Uh And she was telling me this and I, you know, I was like, Oh, I can't let my baby do that. And it worked. The (laughs) Mm -hmm. consequences thing. And it made them all three of my children are good money managers. I mean, Mm -hmm. actually, they are so good. They're so cheap that I feel bad (laughs) now. You think you overdid it? I overdid it. I overdid it. But my oldest is 26. She had these pair of sandals. And we were at the beach recently for our vacation. And I just happened. She said, "Mom, can you have my sandals on? I looked at the bottom of them. And I was just like, there's a hole in this. And she was like, yeah. I, know. I said, well, baby, you could get some some sandals. You're working now. And she said, no, they fine. They fine. It's dry during the summer. It's not really raining that much. <laughs> <laughs> and my husband looked over at me. It's like, see, that's you. That, that's your home. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Oh, love it. But I'm happy because here's the thing she might not get those new sandals, but she loves traveling. So mm-hmm. she saves her money for what value, what she right. values. Right. So she saves the travel. She travels and does what she likes. And she's okay with wearing those funky sandals because it doesn't matter to her. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: So I and mean, making her own choices.
2: She's making her own choices but she's making it based on her values and she'll eventually get a new pair when they totally crazy and it does rain. <laughs> and it does <laughs> but i love that about them and so i'm not saying i'm always perfect because i want to shut things down all the time like, yeah no yeah uh but together my husband and i have been able to figure out a system where we let them decide and they do end up making the right decision because we've given them the tools to make mm-hmm. better financial decisions.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about from your book was your section on scams, which mm-hmm. I was very happy to see in the book because so many millennials in particular think that they are impervious to scams. And you highlight a stat from the FTC that found that younger Americans, people 20 to 29, actually reported losing money to fraud more often than those older than them. So can you talk about why you wanted to include this in the book and what your advice might be for those who think that they are not at risk at all of scams?
2: I absolutely wanted to break that stereotype, that myth that only seniors are susceptible to scams. Mm-hmm. The scam artists are really good at their jobs. like They're really good at scaring people and talking to them uh, and figuring out how to get their personal information and the reason why is because young adults put a lot of stuff online on mm-hmm. um, their profiles, when they were born, where they've been. And so when the scam artists call them, they have a lot of that information that they've culled from all these different sites yeah. to make their pitch sound believable.
0: And it's easy for anybody to fall for that, as you pointed out. It's not yeah, it's, something that is anybody's immune from. So I'm, I was exactly really glad it. to see that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Michelle, you wrote a wonderful, moving series of essays called Sincerely, Michelle, and it touched on the issues of the wealth gap. And I would love to know why you decided to do that. What prompted you to be so open and to reveal so much about your history and, and what's happened with money?
2: Well, like so many people, I was horrified by the killing of George Floyd and yes. As a columnist, you know I'm out on the ground reporting on what's been happening across the country in terms of race relations, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to be really honest with you. The last decade, I say, of my career, I've just sort of hunkered down and just did my work and let things happen to me or not happen to me, and just didn't worry about it in terms of my race because mm-hmm. I just got tired of fighting, I got tired of complaining, and and feeling bad about myself because someone wonders how did I get at the post, and I I just, I felt like I couldn't stay silent anymore. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you suffer in silence Mm -hmm. uh, and you have these things happen to you and you don't want it to be part of your career story. And I just decided that Mm -hmm. I had to tell the truth about the things that's happened to me along the way. Because people look at my career and go, wow, look at where you are. What have you done? I'm at the Washington Post. I'm a financial columnist and a section Uh, there were like, what, three or four black people. When I got there, there's still just three or four black people. Mm. Uh, And I just didn't Mm. speak on that. And I thought, you know what? I got to put my voice in there. I got to let people know what it's been like doing my career, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, just the microaggressions Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and people whispering. And we see this played out. With what's happening at ESPN with the whole anchor issue, white anchor, mm-hmm. black anchor, and a white anchor thinking a mm-hmm. black anchor to her job. And um, and so I decided that I just wanted to write this series and sort of walk people through how systemic racism is still here. It is the result of years and decades of institutionalized, sanctioned discrimination by the federal government. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I started the series off about when I uh, got the job at the Washington Post, thrilled about it. But then people kept, would ask me, like, you know, where are you from? Well, how did you get there? And really what was what they were saying is, did you take a job from a white person?
1: Mm. Um, And right. Like sizing up your credentials in exactly. a way they wouldn't their white colleagues.
2: Exactly. And I let it go and I let it go and I tucked it in and I tucked it in. And finally I asked my editor who had hired me, who recruited me, did you hire me because I was black? And he said, yes, (laughs) just like that. That's what I did too. And he said, like, come into my office and let me explain. And so by the time I walked into his office, you know, I'm, trying to fight back tears. And there's this lump in my throat and my heart. I'm just thinking, wow, wow. So I guess they all right. And then he said, listen, I hired you because you were black. I hired you because you were a woman. I hired you because you came from a low income background. And that's a perspective we need around here. I hired you because you're getting a master's degree from Johns Hopkins University. I hired you because you're a really darn good reporter, bankruptcy reporter. And at that time, there mm-hmm. were really large corporate bankruptcies and they needed someone with that expertise.
1: Mm-hmm. And in
2: my head, I was thinking, well, dude, why do we start with all of that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> kind of buried the lead there a little bit.
2: <laughs> you buried the lead. He said, I, I hired you for the totality of of who you are. Oh. And so I said, well, why would you just say simply yes to if you have me a black? Because, And then he said, and I asked him this as I was writing the series. I said, why did you, why, you know, what was that about? He said, because I wanted to say yes to you because I wanted you to know mm. that your blackness was an asset to the Washington Post. Oh, And I wanted you to see that, oh. that who you are culturally Ethnically, it's an asset to the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I had you because you're black and all these other things, too. And it just made me realize I didn't take some some white person's job. That was my job.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I got
2: my job and that's what I want to say to people that you know whenever there's this whole idea of quotas and they're hiring a black person because of this it's it, there are always decisions about who you hire and you factor in a whole lot of things I love the I love using examples as you could tell because I think it helps people understand It's and I'm not if I mess this up just understand I'm not a Football. <laughs>
0: <word>. <laughs> okay,
2: my husband be a gas that I'm using this example. But on a football team, if you got a really good quarterback and you need a good offense, you don't have people say, "Well, why don't you hire another quarterback?" And you say, "Well, I already got a good quarterback. I need an offensive line." And so, but the offensive line, the defensive line, the offensive line, all of it, the kicker, everybody. Together you have a winning team. You need blacks, you need women, you need people who are neurodiverse, meaning maybe someone who has autism and there's a whole range of people and experiences that make for a winning team. Mm -hmm. And so that's what diversity is about. It's not quota shopping. And if you hire the wrong person and they happen to be black, whose fault is that? It's not the hire. It's the person who hired them. Mm -hmm. And there are qualified people out there. You didn't look hard enough. Uh, and so, you know, that was the first part of the series. And then I talked about credit scoring and how, you know, racism mm-hmm. was baked into credit scoring. And so just sort of walk through all of those sort of financial issues that have a race component to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I love the fact that you did talk about your background because a lot of people writing about per- personal finance are like me, you know, grew up middle class or grew up upper middle class, whatever, and have never experienced being poor, never been really up against it. And I think that perspective is hugely important.
2: I did want to tell people that because um, I didn't come from many. Mm-hmm. uh, and, I I have money now, but I did always have money. So people sometimes say, Oh, it's easy for you to say because you got the job at the Washington Post. I didn't I didn't I wasn't born with a job at the Washington Post. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? And I actually know hunger. Not not the kind where you open up the refrigerator and there's food in there and you go, There's nothing to eat. I'm talking you open the refrigerator and there's a box of baking soda in yeah. the refrigerator and nothing else. Yeah. And so I went from being abandoned to with my grandmother who was great with her money, but her money was tight, mm-hmm. uh, to being a student, even though I was on a full scholarship I couldn't call home for money. My my grandmother couldn't afford to get me clothes for college and the other things that you need. I had a full ride. And I still, of course, needed money even to get back home. So listen, I know suffering, financial yeah. suffering. I know mm-hmm. what it's like to be in need. And now that I have more, I I remember that. And so I I think that I come from a place of I know where you are if you don't have any money. And hey, I know where you are when you do have money. Don't Mm -hmm. come with me talking about you can't find room in your budget to save when I know (laughs) that you (laughs) (laughs) can't. When I have seminars, people try to, you know, kind of, oh, I don't have any money. And I'm thinking, you make $150,000 and you're talking about you don't have no money. Come on yeah.
1: now. Come on now. But, you know, in your book and in the series of columns, I found your personal perspective and your background, as you just explained, so powerful. And I think it really helped shape and connect the dots between your hard work and your experience and the opportunities that you've had, the 29 years you've had at the post, with these systemic issues that are still Getting in the way around redlining and credit scoring and people being averse to investing. It it really exemplifies how this is not just an individual person's problem. It is a systemic countrywide issue that people are dealing with every day. And a lot of white Americans were able to look away for a very long time. And now, hopefully, they're not able to anymore.
2: When I wrote the series, um, we braced ourselves for for the racist things that would come and they did i mean full-on kk crazy stuff right but you know what though those weren't the emails or the notes that bothered me the most because i feel like those people are just broken Mm -hmm. uh, and they don't have the capacity to understand how racism has impacted our country Mm -hmm. what really hurt me to my core was people who were highly educated and mm. should know better. Mm. Should know the history and saying the things that they were saying to me. And and the thing that people often said was, "Well, that happened long ago." And my my ancestors didn't own slaves. And it was all about them. And and mm-hmm. here's the thing: one of the historians that I was talking to said that when you look at slavery by generations, it wasn't so long ago.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: It's only in my lifetime that I would have had the right to vote or to live where I live Mm -hmm. or to have the job that I have. And so that's not that long ago. And my children are still facing racism, even in the colleges that they attend. Professors talking down to them or not giving them the same grades, even though they worked in a project group, they did all the work, but the white students get the better grade than they did, Mm. you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not that long ago.
1: Right. It's present day really. Right. Well, as a final question for you, if you could give everyone one piece of tough love advice, what would that be?
2: Oh, that's a good one. The one piece of advice that I would give people is to hate debt. Mm. I, I really have to say that. And I'm very dogmatic and I'm not a, it depends kind of woman. I'm going to tell you straight up, don't do that. Do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and sometimes I take hits for that. And like, I hate that. I hate that. I hate mm-hmm. that. I hate debt. And I joke that if that was a person, I'd slap it. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So I want everybody to hate their student loans, their home loan, all of it. There's no good debt and bad debt as far as I'm concerned. It's only debt. And people like, oh, well, you're not, that's not sophisticated. And you got to talk about leverage and all this kind of stuff like that. And I'm saying, listen, those people who can effectively use leverage because they've got debt because they've got money and stuff. They're not going to listen to me. They're already doing what they're doing. Hmm. I have to be zero tolerance because if I tell those people who are on the fence who know they shouldn't be doing something, hey, it kind of depends which way they, you think they're going to go. <laughs> right?
1: and, yeah, I you think think <laughs> that really speaks to the power of your perspective and you knowing your audience who is yeah. reading and receiving your advice so you can tailor what you're saying for them.
2: That's right. Right. I don't want to co-sign bad decisions. Liz, you can, you can attest to this, right? Most people who ask your question, they already kind of know what they want to do. And they yes. just want you to co-sign this bad decision. <laughs> right, so they'll ask me all kinds of ways. I said, you could keep asking me 10 different ways. The answer still going to be, don't do that. <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs> They want you to give them permission. Correct.
2: Right. They want me to give them permission to make a bad decision. And I just can't do it. Just can't
1: do it. (laughs) Because that's not your job.
2: That's not my job. That's exactly right. It's not my job. It's my job to be tough on you. And I get that you're gonna end up doing what is best for your life. But Mm -hmm. my job. And my pastor always jokes, like, I'm way over here. Like, I'm extreme. And he Mm -hmm. says, but if you can move people to the middle, they're going to be so much better.
0: Oh, I like that. Um,
2: And so that's why I don't equivocate. I just, I'm very, don't do this, do this. My heart's desire is to help those who need someone to practice tough love with them.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Michelle.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: And that's all we have for this episode. Do you have a money question of your own? Turn to the nerds and call or text us your questions at 901-730-6373. That's 901-730-NERD. You can also email us at podcast at nerdwallet.com. Also visit nerdwallet.com slash podcast for more information on this episode. And remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you're getting this podcast.